I'm Pastor Michael. Today we're going to return to our sermon series in Deuteronomy. I have really loved preaching through Deuteronomy. It's a book of um, archaic ancient laws. And on the surface, it seems irrelevant and boring. <laughs> Many, an earnest Bible reading plan has unceremoniously died in Deuteronomy. But I want you to know that Deuteronomy is a profoundly beautiful book. First of all, um, the laws in Deuteronomy are not just these random ancient laws, but they speak to the the universal human condition and our longing for justice and fairness in society. But secondly, there is a deeper meaning. If you think of the Bible as a kind of mystery novel, if you think of it as a kind of like detective novel, in which the thrilling ending is the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ, then all of the clues to solve the riddle is in Deuteronomy, in seed form. And you can't, see, you can't really see it until you read the New Testament. Because virtually every passage in Deuteronomy is either directly quoted or referenced in the New Testament. And as you read the New Testament, you realize that Deuteronomy was all along setting up the plot lines, the, the story elements that would eventually find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There is no other literature like the Bible in all of the world. Today's passage is a little bit more obvious than the other laws because uh, today we're going to look at the legislation on kings, on kings. But I want you to know it is not as straightforward a path as you might think. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. This is Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. I'll read it for you. You can follow along on the overhead projector. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. From among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And... He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of God. So I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at the longing for a king. Secondly, the dread of the king. And then finally, the uh, ideal king. Okay, Longing, dread, ideal. So first, the longing for a king. So Deuteronomy 17, as I said, is the legislation on kings. And uh, what makes these laws rather unique is that God um, has to give... uh, God doesn't... Unlike the other laws where God has to give them these laws, right? He sort of, you could think of it as he almost sort of imposes it on them, right? He's like, here, take it, you, you need this. These laws, the people ask for it. The people request it. You see this in verse 14. Verse 14 is very significant because it's looking ahead to the future. It's a kind of prophecy. And it says that when the people are settled in the land, when they are established as a nation the people will request a king. They will ask for it. In fact, there will be this overwhelming popular outcry and clamor for a king. Give us a king. And what does that tell us? It tells us that there is this universal human longing for a king. You know, as modern people, we... We've lost touch, not necessarily with this longing, but we've lost touch with the image of a king. Because when we think of kings, we, we think of this stuffy, outdated institution, right? I think about Renaissance paintings, you know, in those museums, or I think about the British royalty. You know, I think about these fat, decadent men in powdered wigs, and they're wearing this very elaborate clothing, And they have to walk around very slowly because it's very delicate, right? And there's all this pageantry and frou-frou-ness. Now that I've vividly described it to you, please wipe it from your mind, okay? That is not the image of a king in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a king had two primary aspects, two primary elements of kingship, and they fit together. The first, you need to understand, is that a king was a mighty warrior. He was like the baddest, most ferocious fighter in the village or in the town. Like, that's how he became the king, right? People are like, you should lead us in battle. Um, and so the king in the ancient world, he goes out and he fights for his people, right? He meets the enemy with unflinching courage and he ends them, he vanquishes them. That's essential. The king is a military leader. We get a little, uh, we, we, we recapture a little sense of that with the war in Ukraine. Many of you know the president of Ukraine is Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky is the wartime president. And man, has he played the role well. He's like manly and brave, right? He's got these huge arms, right? He's like barrel-chested. And when the war started, everyone expected Zelensky to flee because the Russians were gunning for him. But he stayed in Kiev. And he rallied the soldiers, right? And I don't know if you've seen these video clips of him. 
He's like wearing a bulletproof vest. He's like walking around inspecting the battle scene. And the whole world has been captivated by Zelensky. He's like a rock star. Um, And they're thinking about making movies of him. Because if he had shown weakness, if he had shown any fear, if he had run away, if he had been incompetent, the war would have been lost 100%. So that's a king. A king is a heroic warrior who saves his people. That's the image in the Bible. I want to read just a few verses from Psalm 45 where you, you see this imagery. Listen to this. I will address my verses to the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. So that's the first thing. A king is a warrior. The second thing is that the king establishes peace and justice for his people. The king goes out and he defeats evil, and then, just as important, he sets the world to right. He defends the cause of the poor and the needy. And under his reign, the people flourish. They enjoy peace and justice. You see this in Psalm 72. Listen to this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy. And may he crush the oppressor. And so the Bible is telling us there is this longing for a heroic warrior to come. And to set the world to right. And it's a universal human longing. Why is it that Marvel comic movies are so popular? I don't think it's just the special effects or the fight scenes. Why is Star Wars? Why is Harry Potter? Why does the Lord of the Rings so resonate with our hearts? Because we're waiting For a hero to come. Who will smash evil. Who will restore beauty and truth. And that's what Deuteronomy 17 is talking about. So that's the first thing. We're longing for this king. But the second thing is we dread the king. We dread him. So what Deuteronomy 17 anticipates. And there's sort of a prophecy. Actually happens in history. In 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a very important text. Um, The story says that the people are settled in the land. And then they ask the prophet Samuel for a king. And the language that they use almost exactly matches verse 14 in Deuteronomy. They say, give us a king to judge us like the nations. And then what happens is God instructs Samuel... He says, give the people 
what they want. And that's how King Saul enters into the story. But before that, Samuel warns the people. And this warning is amazing. It, it, it's worth reading in detail. And so I want to read the text to you. Um, if June can display it on the overhead projector. This is First Samuel chapter 8, 10 through 18. I want you to listen to Samuel's warning about this king that they're asking for. So Samuel, okay. so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officials and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You hear this refrain over and over again. He will take, he will take for himself, for himself. It's a really strange and chilling passage because doesn't Deuteronomy 17 say that it is good to have a king? Why is there all of these rules and, and guidance if a king is a bad thing? And as we saw, the people need a king. We need this heroic warrior, this righteous king, king to come and rescue us. But what Samuel is saying here is really profound. What he's saying is that the problem, the problem is the corruptibility of the human heart. Because when you give human beings power, it starts out well. You know, it starts out with noble intentions and a good beginning. But slowly, over time, it becomes corrupted and evil. So that in the end, a king, rather than using his authority to serve and protect the people, he will use that authority to seize wealth and power for himself. This is the paradox of kings. We need a king. Our hearts long for a righteous king. But we dread kings. We're afraid of them. We have been burned and disappointed far too often. The whole history of the world can be summarized by this paradox. We're looking for a king to save us from this mess of a world that we've made. But every king that we have ever known has broken our hearts. 
So that's the second point, we dread kings. The third point is the Bible's ideal king. So Deuteronomy 17 gives us a portrait of the ideal king. And we're going to look at the, the actual laws. You know, we're going to dive into the specifics and the details. And then we're going to do some analysis. The first thing you should know is that this portrait is very strange. Very strange. I would even say contradictory. Because there's a plane. <laughs> How is that possible? memories. Okay. Um, So the first thing I want you to know is that this portrait is a very strange portrait. I would say it is contradictory or self-refuting almost because all of the trappings and all of the necessary elements of kingship are prohibited. They are denied the king. And so let's go through this. This is going to be fun. Okay. So the first thing is, look at verse 16. It says that the king may not acquire horses. Now you need to understand that in the ancient world, horses were primarily animals of warfare. Horses would drive chariots. Horses would provide for mounted warriors, which in the ancient world, they were the elite troops. And so this law is denying the king the very foundation of his power, which would be military strength. Secondly, verse 17, it says, the king may not acquire wives. You need to understand, this is not just a prohibition against having a harem. You know, because that's what kings would do. They would sleep with many women, because there was no one to stop them. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, kings used marriage for diplomacy, and to make treaties. So a king would like negotiate a treaty with a, with a foreign king, and then they would seal the deal by exchanging wives. Okay, so that's how you do it. And so a king who cannot marry many wives is a king who cannot forge political alliances, which would have been a severe limitation in the geopolitics of that day. Next, verse 17 again. The king may not acquire excessive silver and gold. Again, this is not just a prohibition against personal greed or extracting wealth from the people, which is what kings would do. Did you know, by the way, that um, a lot of people think that the richest man in the world is not Elon Musk? It's Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin's um, net worth is estimated to be somewhere between 200 and 400 billion dollars. This is stolen wealth. This is wealth that he plundered from the Russian people. Because that's what kings do. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, the king's wealth was the national treasury. And so this was the source of his power and his prestige. He would pay his soldiers from out of his wealth. And then look at verse 18. It says that the king is to write a copy of the law and study and read it all the days of his life. So this is really interesting, right? The whole passage is 
prohibitions. You know, a king cannot do this, a king cannot have this. But the one thing he must do, the one required activity of the king, is he must commit himself to a lifelong study of God's word. What does that tell you? It tells you that this is a king who is to be utterly devoted to God. He is to be soaked in God's word. He is to love God and obey God with all of his strength, all of his soul. He is to be a king after God's own heart. And so that's the portrait. Deuteronomy envisions a humble and godly king. It is a wondrous and beautiful portrait. And when you read it, it rings true, does it not? This is the king we want. And then, the, and the next question then is, who is this king? Who is this king that we're waiting for? Who is this king that our hearts were built for? And some of you who are theologically astute are saying, I know exactly where you're going with this. And it's very tempting to draw a direct line to the New Testament and to, Je- and to Jesus Christ. But it is worth pondering to ask why the Bible itself doesn't do that. Instead, after Deuteronomy 17, the Bible gives us a long story. And so for the rest of our time, let me tell you that story. Some of you may remember that Deuteronomy, the the context is that Deuteronomy was given in the wilderness, right? The people are on the plains of Moab. Moses gives them this law, and they're right on the cusp of entering the promised land. And then what happens next is that the people enter the land. But they are surrounded by their enemies. And because of their idolatry, because of their own infighting, they are too weak to defend themselves. And the book of Judges, which records much of this story, has this reoccurring verse, this reoccurring line. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then in the book of 1 Samuel, it tells us that the people asked the prophet Samuel for a king. And the first king was Saul. Now I want you to know, Saul looked the part. He's like this movie star version of the king. He is heads and shoulders taller than any man. He is strikingly handsome. And at first, all seems to go well. The, uh, the, his first act as king is that there's an Israelite city under siege. And then he rides out with his men and he fights and he destroys the enemy and he rescues the people and everyone's like, ah, this is the king we've been waiting for. But the turning point in the story is that God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And he meets them in battle and he annihilates them. But... He keeps the best of the sheep and the cattle for himself, which was strictly forbidden by God. And in doing so, he disobeys God. And so God rejects him as king. 
And then the prophet Samuel anoints David as the next king. Now you should know that David is a completely different king than Saul. And you see that right away when you first meet him. Do you guys remember the story? Um, We're told that David is the eighth son of Jesse. That's very significant. Because when you have seven sons, okay, seven is the number of completion and fullness, right? That means like you have a full, the fullness of your family. And then David is like the eighth son, right? He's sort of like, the, the, the afterthought. He's sort of the runt of the family. And you see that because when the prophet Samuel goes to visit Jesse, right, God tells him, go, you're going to find the next king among the sons of Jesse. And so Jesse says, here are my seven sons, right? And the prophet Samuel looks at each of them and God says, they're not, no one hears the king. And Samuel's like, do you have another son? And Jesse says, oh, you must be talking about David. Oh, he's out in the field. I didn't even think about him. Do you want me to go fetch him for you? And so David becomes the king. And the Bible says that David describes him as a man after God's own heart. David is a man of faith. Who loves the Lord. He writes the Psalms. You know, half of the Psalms are attributed to him. He's he's called the sweet singer of Israel. He's this soulful, sensitive, poetic king. But you remember what happens, right? One day at the height of his power, David goes out onto his palace roof. And he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he takes her. And he commits adultery. And then he commits murder to cover up the adultery. And that's when everything falls apart. His son Absalom usurps the throne. There's civil war. And the rest of his kingship is just chaos. Chaos and fighting. And as a reader, you're wondering, what is going on? The fall of... Saul, the fall of David. And then in the middle of the story, the prophet Nathan comes to David. And it's one of the most significant moments in the Bible. Because the prophet Nathan says to David, you are not the man. But God will rescue Israel through your son. This is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant says that it's David's son whom God will fulfill his promises. And then the rest of the story, you're wondering, well, which son? (laughs) Because David has many sons. And for a while, you think it's Adonijah, right? Because he's the next eldest son. And actually, Adonijah temporarily seizes power. But eventually, you realize it's Solomon. The account of Solomon's reign is found in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. And I want you to know that under Solomon's reign, Israel reaches heights that has never been achieved before. This is the pinnacle of Israel's glory. There is peace in the land. All of her enemies are subdued. They become vassal states. There's widespread prosperity among the people. In fact, there's a line in the story that's astonishing. It says that gold and silver were as common as stones. 
And then do you guys remember the story of queen, the Queen of Sheba? She comes to visit Solomon. She asks him all of her questions. And she is astonished at his wisdom and the greatness of his reign. She says, surely God is with you. And she praises, she praises God. And if you had lived in the days of Solomon, you know what you would have said? You would have said, it's coming true. All the prophecies, all the promises of God are being fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. But there's a problem. Because the text says that Solomon loved many foreign wives. And they turn his heart away from the Lord. And so his, his reign ends in tragedy. When he dies, the kingdom is divided. The ten northern tribes break away to form their own nation. And only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay loyal to the house of David. So that it's this little truncated kingdom. And then the story tells us that the land descends into darkness. There is a succession of kings who do not follow the Lord. They are wicked kings. They are idolatrous kings. Until you get to the reign of Hezekiah. And then a bit later, the reign of Josiah. Both of whom are in the line of David. Hezekiah, because of his trust and faith in the Lord, he's able to repel the Assyrians when they besiege Jerusalem. And then Josiah rediscovers the law, he teaches it to the people, he he rebuilds the temple, and under their reign, there is a kind of temporary revival of piety and devotion to the Lord. But it doesn't last, and ultimately it falls short. And then the last king in David's line is Zedekiah. Zedekiah... Under his reign, the Babylonians surround Jerusalem and they take the city. They destroy Jerusalem and the temple and they capture Zedekiah. They blind him. They gouge out his eyes and then they put him in chains and then they drag him barefoot weeping into captivity in Jerusalem where he spent to Babylon, sorry, and he's in prison in Babylon until the, until the end of his days, and then he dies. And thus ends the royal line of David. It is a very strange story. You have this portrait of an ideal king in, for, uh, in a Deuteronomy 17. And then the story says, it's not Saul. It's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not Hezekiah or Josiah. It's not Zedekiah. And then the story ends. (laughs) Like literally, it ends like that. It's not Zedekiah. Do you see what the Old Testament is doing? There is a kind of artwork where... The image is in the empty space. There's a kind of artwork where you're you're drawing not on the image itself, but you're drawing around the image. 
You're, you're shading and you're coloring in around the image, but not actually in the image or on the image itself. And when it's done well, the effect is quite striking because the eye does not look at the periphery, the etchings, but it looks at the center. And in the empty space, it sees the outline of the image. That is the Old Testament's theology of kingship. It's not Saul. It's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not any of the kings that you encounter in the Old Testament. Now, do you see it? It's a really profound way to tell a story. By the way, a story that stretches a thousand years. Who could conceive of such a thing? And now we are ready to read the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And this is what he says to her, listen. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, listen, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king. He is the son of David, foretold by the prophets. But I want you to know that Jesus is unlike any king you have ever encountered or ever heard of in your life. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In his life, Jesus had no earthly wealth. And when he died, do you remember the Roman soldiers divide up his possessions? And do you remember what they cast lots for? It's for his clothing, because that's the only thing that he had. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus was so gentle and lowly that prostitutes and sinners would come flocking to him because they felt so welcomed and loved by him. Little children were so not intimidated by Jesus, they would clamor up on his lap to receive a blessing. Do you remember the triumphal entry? When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, which is a very symbolic imagery of kingship, he comes riding into Jerusalem, but not at the head of some great army, not as some conquering hero riding a war horse, But Jesus is riding a donkey, the colt of a donkey, this humble, lowly creature. Do you remember um, when Jesus is brought before Pilate? He's bloodied and disfigured. He's been tortured. He's been severely beaten. Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, are you a king? And he's laughing 
with derision. He's full of hatred and disdain. How can this be the Jewish Messiah? The Jewish Alexander the Great. And then the soldiers have their way with Jesus. They place on him, very significant, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And they put on him a purple robe. And they bow before him. They say, oh, hail, king of Israel. They're mocking Jesus. They find it to be the most absurd, insulting thing they have ever heard. That this is the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish great king, told by the prophets. And then they place a sign on the cross. Do you guys remember that? John 19, 19. It says, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he meant it to be a delicious irony. But actually, it was the deepest truth that has ever been said. And now we understand Deuteronomy 17. Because on the face of it, it makes no sense at all. It's a portrait of a king, the ideal king, but by worldly standards, he's not a strong king, he's a weak king. He's a king without armies, without wealth, without alliances. What sort of king is that? How can such a king defeat evil and oppression? How can meekness and humility destroy evil? And when you look at the cross... You understand. Because on the cross, Jesus indeed did battle, but not against any earthly foe like the Romans, but against humanity's greatest enemy of all, which is sin and death. And how do you defeat sin and death? This is how Jesus did it. Jesus defeated death by his death. Jesus defeats sin like a judo master. He lets evil take its blow. He uses the very grip of evil, the most evil, wicked thing humanity could think of, which is a Roman crucifixion. And then he turns the weight of evil against itself so that what looked like utter defeat and vanquishment was the victory of King Jesus. Do you understand? I want to read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Listen to this. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's what you do before a king. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. And to human beings, that's foolish. Foolish. The people said, give us a king like the nations. 
They wanted a strong king. They wanted a king full of power. But God sent us the king we truly need. A weak king who utterly emptied himself on the cross. And it seems foolish to us. But the foolishness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And so here is the gospel. Christ saved us. Christ saved us not through his strength, but through his weakness. He wins the battle not by force of arms, but by his death. Who would conceive of such a story? That's the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, the gospel is unlike any story that has ever been told. And it offends us. It offends our sensibilities and our fleshly love of strength. Thank you for saving us by the weakness of Christ. And help us to remember that the gospel is not just a story outside of us but it's a pattern of life inside of us. And let us live our lives in the model of Christ to lay down our lives to serve others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.